What is up, team? Welcome back to the show. It is Q&A time. Let's go ahead and get right into it. First question we have, how long does it take to rebuild muscle after 11 weeks not training a particular muscle group? All right, so this is a conversation I have a lot. And in the context of for a lot of clients, it'll be something like, hey, I'm not going to be able to train for about a week. Like a lot of people are getting sick lately. Am I going to lose muscle? So the thing to understand there is... The research shows us that first of all, it's going to take about two weeks of being very sedentary before we even start to lose any muscle tissue at all, right? So first, it's the thing people get confused about is it's a lot harder to lose muscle than you think, especially in the context of like a week or even two weeks, you're not going to lose any muscle. You don't, you really don't need to stress it, right? So, and again, like in this case, especially if you're sick, I'm always telling clients, Hey, no, like the worst thing we can do right now is for you to try to power through, train, get everybody else at your gym sick as well. Um, but also you'll just run your body into the ground further, right? Like one to even two weeks isn't going to do any harm. Now, from that, when it comes to 11 weeks of not training a muscle group, some additional considerations. First, it's important to understand that if you are, so like with this question, again, we're just talking about a particular muscle group. So it sounds like maybe you are training the rest of your body or a large majority. So the thing to understand is like, if you are training most of the rest of your body, you're probably not going to have lost much muscle tissue, honestly, if at all in the specific group. So for example, because the thing to understand is like muscle groups are going to be hit indirectly. So for example, if we're training our back, but we've taken 11 weeks away from training our biceps, we're still going to be able to, like our biceps are still going to be hit in our pulling movements to a large degree. Um, if you're like me, we're training our legs, but we're not training our calves. Your calves are still to an extent going to be worked. Now there, like, is that enough to grow your calves? No, we're going to need movement at the ankle joint to actually grow the calves but that's another topic entirely but the point of this is like also realize you are going to be training other muscles or when you're training other muscles it's more than likely if you're training most of the rest of your body that you still hit those muscles in directly right or if even if it's like glutes and we're focusing mostly on quads we're still going to have some glutes involved for example it just won't be like the most optimal stimulus typically if we're biasing other muscle groups now from there understand that muscle memory is a very real thing meaning it's much easier to regain lost muscle than it is to build new muscle so really as a general rule you can probably expect it to take something like about half the time you took off to get back um and that's just a general rule i would say if anything like we could err towards a little bit less than that but really right about half the time you took off is a good amount of time to expect to get it back so like in this case hey it took 11 we took 11 weeks off it's likely that by week five to week six you'll probably have regained all of it all right next question we have do you approach weekly macro planning differently for shift workers okay so to dig into this question we're gonna go pretty deep here but we do need to talk about circadian rhythm. So a weird amount of our biological processes are basically very rhythmic or cyclical. So chronobiology is basically the study of biological processes that have time-based rhythms. So like animals hibernate and have these different wakefulness cycles. Now, 
within the study of all these rhythmic biological processes, then we have something called circadian rhythm. So your circadian rhythm relates to biological processes in your body that seemingly run on roughly a 24 hour clock. Basically, many processes in our body repeat every 24 hours. Now, your circadian rhythm is also endogenous, meaning that it originates from within your body and brain. That said, lots of external factors, which is what relates back to shift work here, can influence your circadian rhythm to a large degree. So when your circadian rhythm is out of sync with the 24-hour day, this can create some issues, which is why understanding how to best manage your nutrition as a night shift worker is super important. So to make this simple, we basically think of this as like we have multiple circadian clocks that are responsible for setting our circadian rhythm. Now, our main circadian clock is located in the brain and its setting can be affected by light, sleep, shift work, activity, different bed and wake times or traveling to different time zones. Now from there we have a couple other peripheral clocks such as muscle, your heart, your intestines, etc. Um now from there when our clocks are in sync, what we need to understand is we're in a state of circadian alignment. This is of course good. Your hormones, your sleep, your digestion are all going to be optimal. That said, by exposing our bodies to different light exposure, traveling through time zones, and even eating at much different times, we can create this case of what we call circadian misalignment. So basically, while your circadian rhythm comes from within, if certain behaviors don't align with this endogenous rhythm, so think light exposure, meal times, etc., things can get out of whack. So when we're in this state of circadian misalignment, first we know that this can disrupt your body temperature and your melatonin cycles. And these are both super important to the wake sleep cycle. So basically if we're in a state of circadian alignment, your body temperature is higher during the day and dips at night. Now melatonin, which as you probably know was a hormone that tells your body when it's time to sleep and time to wake up essentially works on an opposite scale or an opposite schedule i should say essentially to body temperature where it's going to stay low during the day and it's going to rise at night now disruptions to both of these cycles obviously is going to cause issues with sleep which will typically lead to increased cravings for processed food decreased energy expenditure lower training performance and we can increase cortisol next Circadian misalignment is going to decrease leptin. So leptin is a hormone produced by your fat cells. Now your leptin levels essentially are going to determine how hungry you are. And they also help with energy expenditure. Typically when leptin levels are higher, our body will more freely kind of let the brakes off of little things like facing, fidgeting, blinking that allow for more calories burned. Now, as mentioned before, um, this is also being in a state of circadian misalignment is also going to increase cortisol, which is the stress hormone. Now, some of this is necessary. For example, cortisol is part of what wakes your body up in the morning. Now, again, we've talked a lot about the curves of these different hormones and your body temperature. So the natural cortisol curve your body follows in circadian alignment has your cortisol levels highest first thing in the morning and then decreasing throughout the day to have you ready for a night of deep sleep and recovery before another cortisol spike in the morning. Now being in circadian misalignment essentially flips this curve on its head and this can potentially create hormonal imbalances, increase hunger, majorly disturb sleep of course, and cause several other issues. Next, being in a state of circadian misalignment increases blood sugar and insulin response after eating. So basically you have much worse blood sugar response to a particular meal and the insulin response to handle glucose is also much higher, essentially meaning you're going to be a little bit more insulin resistant. And then finally, one of the biggest issues more relevant 
not so much this discussion around circadian rhythm, but just relevant to shift workers is one thing we know is that consistent meal times do improve insulin sensitivity and calories burned during digestion. So for example, we actually have a 2016 study that compared two groups. Now one ate three main meals and three snacks daily for two weeks. And then the other group varied between three to nine meals every day for two weeks. And as a result, there were lower glucose responses and increased thermic effect of food in the group with the consistent meal times. So again, a lot to get into there. And honestly, like when we hear, so like there's a running joke in some of the nutrition certifications I've taken where it's like, yeah, if you have a shift worker, the best thing you could do is tell them to get a new job. That said, for most people and many of the clients that we've worked with, this is just the reality of where you're at, right? So first and foremost, we need to understand that there are a lot of strategies thrown out there about like how we can best manage shift work. But if trying so hard to focus on, okay, I'm going to eat all my meals in X window, I'm going to time my carbs around X workouts, etc., is causing you to really struggle to stick to the most basic principles we have. Again, this is something that is common um, like when clients describing their experiences before working with us. Sometimes it is easy to almost focus so hard on what's most optimal that we kind of miss the forest for the trees, right? Where people are worrying about like, hey, maybe I want only X amount of artificial sweeteners, but they're not tracking their overall calories, right? Same thing applies here. If this is causing you to miss, like you're focused so much on these details that it actually makes you miss your overall macros across the course of a day or multiple days, basically like those weekly totals, are we on average getting as much protein as we want, um, as many carbs as we want, as many fats as we want? Is it mostly 80 to 90% whole foods, right? Like if the complexity of what <laughs> I'm discussing here is causing you to miss the forest for the trees, so to speak, then don't worry about it. Again, even if it is like, hey, maybe we're not eating at the most optimal times, the biggest chunk of the results are always going to come from hitting your overall food targets with quality foods 80 to 90% of the time, right? So make sure that's still your first priority here. Now from there, establishing consistent meal times is going to be more optimal for your metabolic health. And again, as I mentioned before, in the study discussing insulin sensitivity, um, we have some research that seems to indicate that this will also help your fat loss a bit by just sticking to consistent meal times. So if you're a shift worker, that means that establishing a meal schedule during the day and ideally sticking to it, even if it means you're not eating at night when you're working, does seem to be a bit more optimal for health and fat loss. Now, what I would say here as a whole is, again, this is an area where we can be a little bit more flexible. So like the most ideal scenario here would be, hey, we have these consistent meal times that you eat throughout the day. And then maybe like when we do have a random, and this is this also varies on the person's schedule, right? So if it's like, hey, you occasionally have this random night that pops up where I have to do a, like a night shift. Okay, we're just gonna avoid eating around that time frame. Now, what I found is with clients who can have a consistent schedule where it's like, okay, there's three days in a row where I work nights. This is where that does start to become a little bit harder to adhere to in my experience. So basically, oftentimes, then what we'll do is, hey, let's establish this eating schedule for the rest of the week when you're not working. Um, when you're not working nights, like these are the normal times you eat in your days. And then with, when you're night shifts, hey, let's like push this window back, right? So maybe rather than starting at 8 a.m., your eating window starts at 2 p.m., right? And we're pushing this whole meal schedule back by what about six hours, right? That's typically another way we'll go about this. Um, 
Now within that, something else that I found very helpful because your days can really start to run together is rather than having your macros looking at it as a 24 hour macro goal, very much how I like to do this is combining even two to three days worth of macros. So basically you take your macros, multiply them times three, and then it's rather than okay, within the, each of these 24 hour windows, we want you to hit this very tight macro range. Rather it is okay. Across the course of these three days, we want you to have hit your macro totals when added up. Like, so again, your macro totals for one day times three, we just want you to have hit that number across the course of these three days, right? That's something that I found does help quite a bit in this regard as well, because otherwise it can just be so hard within a 24 hour window. Like if you're awake a lot more of one 24 hour window than you are in the other, this can't be, this can't propose or create a challenge. And then finally here again, because again, we know some insulin sensitivity will potentially be decreased at night. Now, again, like this is somewhat splitting hairs, but again, if we're getting down to the nitty gritty of optimizing things, we will very much want to time the majority of your carbs. So again, typically we'll say 50 to 60% of your carbs. We want you to consume pre and post workout, right? That's when we know insulin sensitivity is going to be the highest because basically that is when glucose is going to be sent a strong signal to be shuttled to your muscle cells, right? So basically that's when insulin sensitivity is the highest and we'll also be using a lot more of those carbs in our training. Whereas the rest of the day, you'll much more likely your body will be focusing on burning fat as we're doing mostly low intensity activity the rest of the day. So again, based on insulin sensitivity, it does make sense to time most of our carbs around our training sessions. And that is really how we approach it for a shift worker. Honestly, within this, like there is just almost also so much variance between people who work in the night shifts and like what that's like, the predictability of that, that a lot of times this will look slightly different based on the individual. So final question we have, I know the difference in metabolic hypertrophy and neurostimuli. What is systemic? I've seen that describe all three types of programming. All right. So here really to my knowledge, we would really only use the phrase systemic to describe a metabolic type of programming. But a lot of times you will hear people talking about like a systemic stimulus versus or like what the rate limiter is, for example. But I'm guessing in the context you're hearing it out of, outside of metabolic programming. So within that, I would say maybe this is just used to describe like, hey, we experience a systemic effect from X thing. But again, we're typically only gonna use this within a metabolic style of programming. So basically when we look at metabolic programs, we can look at these two primary categories being a local metabolic program and a systemic metabolic program. So local metabolic phase, definitely a fun one. I have a few clients going through one phase like this currently. Um, so basically here, we are going to typically be doing something like, let's say we did six sets of eight with 30 seconds rest between sets. So within this, um, Basically, this is a way that we can actually, from one end, there's a couple of different applications for this. So like one for a client that is quote unquote skinny fat, or even for someone that has poor fasting blood glucose, we can actually use this as a way to basically get a crazy pump. Typically more glucose is going to be pulled to the muscle tissue and it can actually, now like this is definitely not, <laughs> we have to tread carefully with things like this as well, but it would make sense that 
for a client that's struggling with like fasted blood glucose levels, that would be a way to potentially improve it. Also, again, we can use this as a way to actually deload for like when we're coming off of a hypertrophy block, for example, the overall intensity is going to be a little bit less, a little bit lower. We're typically focusing mostly on shortened overload position movements, which we know, well, that will give you a great pump. It's not going to be nearly as, it's not going to create nearly as much muscle damage as lengthened overload position movements. So think here, for example, like um, an example of a lengthened overload chest movement would be like a dumbbell bench press, whereas a short overload would be like the chest fly. We're going to get a great pump from it. We're focusing mostly on short lean overload movements, but within that, there's not going to be a ton of muscle damage. So it's a good way to like still a few weeks of this is a good way to kind of deload while still feeling like you're pushing yourself, you're mixing it up and you're training a little bit and you're getting a great pump. And it does have those other benefits that I mentioned as well. And again, like for an individual that is quote unquote skinny fat, this will also improve nutrient partitioning, which can help in that case. So here, the thing to understand is we call this local because it's very much focused on keeping the stimulus localized to a few specific muscle groups and achieving a crazy pump in said muscle tissue. So basically the local stress in a specific muscle tissue is the rate limiter. So for example, the thing that causes you to stop the set is, wow, there's this burn in my chest. Now, on the other hand, we could also do what we call a systemic metabolic phase. Now here, the focus is on creating system-wide fatigue, but not taking any one tissue to the point of failing typically. So there, for example, we do something like an upper lower superset. So for example, a trap bar RDL supersetted with an upper back pull down with probably 40 seconds to 60 seconds rest. Now, basically the thing here is the systemic challenge. So you gasping for air in this case is the rate limiter, not the local stress. So again, we want most of these sets to be stopped, not because it's, oh, wow, I'm doing these RDLs and there's so much tension in my hamstrings. I just can't do another rep, but rather I'm gasping for air, right? This is great for improving conditioning and clients that are weak in this regard. So for example, like if we have a client where okay, you're doing split squats or you're doing a back squat or a hack squat. And the rate limiter, the thing that's causing you to stop the set isn't the fact that you just have so much tension in your quads and those are truly approaching failure, but rather you feel nauseous, right? Okay, what that tells us is, and that's why you're stopping your sets. We probably need to improve your conditioning and this is a good place for that. But again, that's the system wide. Like we have a systemic rate limiter rather than a local rate limiter. So rather than the local muscle tissue being the thing that causes you to stop the set, it's kind of the system wide fatigue. So hopefully that made sense. Feel free to shoot me a DM if any piece of that wasn't super clear though. And that is what I have for y'all for today. As always, thank you for tuning in.